Hello, my friends. Welcome back to the Naked Leadership Podcast. This is Chad. I'm your host. We have an excellent conversation for you this week. We have Courtney Nichols-Gold joining us for the conversation. She is the co-founder and co-CEO of Smarty Pants Vitamins. You guys, this company is doing killer things with both their products and their people. It was so enlightening to have a conversation with her, especially given the times that we're in with COVID-19 and all of the adjustments they're needing to make in order to take care of their people, make sure that they're innovating and profitable at this time, and just such good insight, such good conversation and vulnerability, and she asked some fantastic questions. So let's get into it. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Naked Leadership Podcast, where no conversation is too precious to be had. My name's Chad, your host. I'm here with my friends and mentor, Dan Takini and Adrian Kaler. How are you, gentlemen? Hello, hello. Great. Good to be back. Yeah, today we have a guest for you that I'm excited to dig in with because she's got some fantastic insights, I'm sure. And especially in this time where we are, um, she's, she's, uh, no pressure, no pressure. was that a, was that a grimace? Be fantastic. Be fantastic. All right. Be fantastic. Hey, hey. <laughs> and no. without further ado, the fantastic Courtney Nichols gold. <laughs> How are you? I am well, thank you. How are you? I'm great. Uh, Courtney is the co-founder, co-CEO of Smarty Pants. Uh, Smarty Pants is a vitamins manufacturer, distributor, uh, big brand, um, and uh, also a Take New Ground client. So has been working closely with Adrian, and uh, that's how we found her. And we snatched her up and said, hey, will you give us an hour of your time so that we can just pick your brain and have a conversation with you? And we're so grateful for your generosity and being here, uh, especially this time. You guys are running like crazy. I know that. And uh, I can only imagine what your days look like at this point. So thank you for carving out the time. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. It's just nice to, as we all know, nice to stay connected to people through all this. So so could you um, just kind of set the stage for us? I know most of us, as we think about what's happening in business at this time, we're thinking about the words that come up are downsizing, furloughs, uh, you know, no, like <laughs> just all of bad gloom, doom, that sort of stuff. And, and, you guys are having a, a different experience. Um, and I'm, I'm just wondering if you could kind of set the stage a little bit and let us know where what's happening in Smarty Pants at this time. Sure. Uh, it's, it's different. I mean, there are some things that are the same, just in that I have employees who have families who they worry about and care about and want to keep safe and are dealing with a new world order, but they are all I think we all feel grateful that we are in a preventative health business. And that means that, yes, people definitely want our products. And we have been dealing with an, a, a crazy surge in demand for all of our products. Um, you know, I think the positive is that the employees definitely feel one grateful that we all are employed. Right. That's a very real concern and that they can uh, take care of their families and that they get to work on something that they feel like is a contribution. We're not um, saving lives. We're not on the front lines. We're not doing anything like that, but we at least get to feel like we're working on a product that we know people are looking for right now. So vitamin C, vitamin D, zinc, all those things that people are talking about are in all of our products. So that 
obviously is a very motivating thing for people. Um, everyone has been, uh, I think, really extraordinary, frankly, and and how committed. And you can tell that the team feels very inspired. Um, but there, you know, we're all still people, and we're all still dealing with how weird it is to be at home all the time. Uh, stressful with with young kids. Stressful uh, with parents you're worrying about that maybe you can't see because you're worried about their well being. So, you know, it's it's different. But I think. The only other twist I would add is it's interesting. It's kind of like there's a little bit of survivor's guilt, frankly. Uh, I've shared this with Adrian. I think oh, the thing wow. for me as a CEO, I feel really bad because we are insulated from a lot of it. And so we've been doing everything that we can to pay it forward and share with the people around us and give back. And, you know, my whole team has been that way. But you're kind of embarrassed, you know, when people say how you're doing. You're like, well, really? We're, the business is doing well. And I'm kind of... I don't know. That's been my response anyway. I'm kind of like self-conscious about it, frankly. Yeah. Yeah. I, what what kind of evolution have you noticed in yourself as a leader um, inside the context of the business through this crisis, through these changes, knowing, I mean, one thing that comes up for me is you, as you talk about, you're not, you, the business is going well, but you're not immune to the worries that are, are on top of all of our minds you know, the wellness of our families, the health of our families, having kids at home. Have you noticed shifts in yourself as a leader through this process? Things maybe you need to pay closer attention to at this moment that you haven't prior. Um, I'm just interested to know how you, how you view your role and the evolution of it at this time. I think the biggest challenge for me is the long-term nature of it. So I'm actually someone who I love a good challenge. Like I tend to do well under extreme pressure. So um, it's more for me, it's how do you make room for all the humanity and the fallibility and the vulnerability because it's not too, a week of a crisis. I mean, it's what makes me a good entrepreneur, right? Like I'm really good with the up and down and super unpredictable nature of entrepreneurship. But when that's a three month, a six month sort of time horizon, as opposed to a two day sort of intense event and how do you problem solve in a crisis? I'm really good at that. But the long-term thing, I think I just had this experience yesterday. I had a call with Dan and Adrian with my husband, who's my co-founder and co-CEO, which has its own dynamics. And we were doing a coaching call and they just said, oh, how are you doing? And I literally burst into tears in the first five seconds. And I realized that I've been carrying that around, one, feeling guilty about the fact that who am I to feel stress when I, I have a job and you know what I mean? And our business is um, you know, able to keep operating in this time. So I think for me, the lesson and the opportunity is really to understand how to make room for both, use the advantage that I have naturally in terms of my ability to endure and, and deal with a lot of intensity, but to do that over in a more sustainable way over a long period of consistent need of leadership, right? Like I'm trying to be there for my team, but I got to make room for me or it's going to fall apart at some point. Right. And so that was really a lesson I think I even saw yesterday. I was like, okay, I'm allowed to fucking be sad or like be exhausted. Or even if yeah. things are, even if I do have a job, I'm allowed to feel it. Like it's okay that it's hard for mm. me. So that's been a big one. What, what are some of the things you do to deal with the stress, to manage the stress? I mean, it's all silly things. It's like slowing down and walking around with my dog and feeling the sun on my face. Like I've always been someone who likes sunrise and sunset. And I have been giving myself an hour just walking around the neighborhood with my dog and literally standing facing the sun with my eyes closed and just letting that thing beam its way into my brain. Um, 
you know, it's stuff like that, dancing embarrassingly by myself with a great deal of exuberance. Um, awesome. yeah, <laughs> exactly. You don't want to see that dance. Um, no, it's like, it is like everyone always says, right? It's like, what are the great gifts in life in general? It's the little things. Like it's the, those, yeah, it's just the little moments. I don't know where you get to feel present for a second and just be honest and feel and uh, cry and, you know, give yourself room for that stuff and your dog. And the fact that you work at home and in the middle of a podcast, your dog could decide to start barking and you just have to room for that. He wants to play too. Exactly. You know, Court, a lot of the conversations we have on the Naked Leadership Podcast is really around communication and how to get to the core issues with teams. Um, and I, every core issue at a corporate level is usually a, just a multiplied issue that we all deal with at a, on a personal level. Um, so I'm curious, even as you've been navigating the waters um, with your team and really cultivating the types of conversations that need to happen, what have you noticed one of the things that, that I find interesting is like, as the top of the organization is communicating, they're obviously communicating through the concerns of the top of the organization and some great, some uh, the great, I think some of the really talented leaders can understand that the levels, the, the concerns of the different levels uh, really, really form the perspective at that level, which informs the behavior and, and, and informs the outcomes. So I'm curious, around like as you're talking to your team how have you you know brought those conversations to the surface have you or even have, what have you noticed in that process if that's something that you've done in new ways during this time have old communication patterns sustained and worked for you i'm just curious about how the conversational nature of leadership um, has shifted for you i think one of the positives out of this whole like slack zoom existence is there is an opportunity for real-time communication that in some ways, you know, you notice this with kids, you know, sometimes you never try to have a conversation face-to-face. -face. It's like on the way to school or back from school when they're sitting in the back seat and they're not looking at you, they'll be way more honest, right? Like, or if you're doing an activity and they're not looking at you and you ask them a question, they'll be way more honest yeah. than if you're like head on. And in some ways, I think all of us feel more comfortable sometimes sharing in a platform where it's not quite as in intensely one-to-one. -one. And so if we have this um, a channel on our Slack that's kind of like our town hall channel, and I had been starting every week giving somebody, everyone a theme to comment on, right? So it might be like, tell me something you're grateful for, a specific, like tell me something specific and little, like it doesn't have to be a big thing that, you know, happened to you. And this last week, it was kind of like, tell me something that's driving you bananas about your daily life at home. And here's my, and here's mine. You know what I mean? Just to kind of give people one permission and two, it, I think it's less because I think you're right. Obviously, at different levels. You have to remember everyone has different priorities, and you're never going to know what all of them are, right? Some of that's personal information. But to your point, you're, you might have different concerns. But there's also something about tapping into what connects us all. So I think my instinct, good mm -hmm. or bad, has been what is the th like? We're all in this. We really are. And the more we can share some of that. I don't know those moments it's connecting and we get that we get it. I mean, I don't know. We've done little things. I've been sending flowers and plants, honestly, to several employees every week, just surprising people at home to be like, I like, I get it. Like it's just kind of shitty and getting something in the mail is nice. You know what I mean? Like little things like that. And then I think just sharing. So I don't know if that really answers your question about the specific levels, but that maybe that, and that's not good on my part. I haven't been thinking about it that way. It's been more like, 
what gives people permission to be to, to not to kind of share what I've been feeling, which is like I've been thinking I needed to be perfect all the time. And maybe it's good just to be like, you know, it's hard for me, too. And what's hard for you? And let's have room to talk about that as much as like the whole gratitude and always be grateful and positive kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, you bring up um, this scenario of being a dispersed team that you weren't your business wasn't built around being a dispersed team. And so I'm interested to know for you, what are some of, cause, cause one of the things that we find consistently with leaders at the top is um, they feel like they're the only ones experiencing these types of worries, concerns, uh, you know, and, and that can be very isolating. And so one of our, um, one of our goals for this podcast and these conversations is to get those things out into the open. What is it that every what is it that every leader is feeling, worrying about, caring about, keeping them up at night, but they think they're the only ones that are thinking about this thing or experiencing this, uh, you know, this adversity. And specifically in the context of having your team dispersed, what are some of the things that you worry about, both for your business, for you as a leader, for their productivity, for profitability? For the team, I think uh, this is something we talked about yesterday. I can, I think one concern is people feel like it's not that different. Like they don't like the isolation part, but they feel like, oh, I'm doing my job. As a leader, I can see this, the difference in the level of, I don't know, there's just a little bit of magic that comes. And I'm one of those leaders who actually really pushed for us all to be in the same place together. You know, remote, remote work has been a thing out there for a long time, but I think what you found for a lot of those organizations that have tried it, is actually they do see a difference when people are together physically versus when they're distributed. And I can see it in there's the little extra 10 to 15%, which is, you know, frankly, where a lot of our magic is and how we've won time and again is in that magic. So that's a worry for me. I just feel like it, I feel like other people aren't seeing it. So they're like, well, we'll go back to work whenever. And if it's in a month, that's okay. But maybe we want to stay here. This is kind of nice. Maybe I want to always work from home. And I've heard people making those jokes and I worry that I'm gonna be the only person in the room saying, you guys, this is not the company that we had. It's great and you guys are doing an amazing job, all things considered, but trust me, we wanna to be together again as soon as we can. So that's one. And the only, I think the other big one is just, everyone's worrying about their family and I'm worrying about all the families, <laughs> right? And that's the part that gets me emotional. Like, you know, it's hard, I worry about everybody's families and not just my not just my employees, but my customers, our grant recipients, you know, we do matching grants for these people around the world and I worry about them and I'm a worrier. So I just, <laughs> that's my natural instinct. So that's the other one. I have, I have lots of groups of people that I, <laughs> I like to worry about my investors. I worry about my board. I, you know, they're all on the list. Yeah. It's um, Dan and Adrian, as you guys are working with both Courtney and, and many other leaders, what are, I, what I heard in what Courtney said was like, there there's going, we're creating something right now that, that is going to create a future that I might not want. Mm. Meaning people are, are getting a taste of something that I don't want my company to be. That's just not the, what we've set the foundation up for. Are there any others, any other examples of things that leaders are feeling like that, that you have run into in your coaching and, uh, with people or, or what are we talking about when we looking at a current situation, especially in a crisis and projecting that into the future? Is there value in that? Well, you know, one of the things we talked about yesterday was being willing to challenge, like finding possibility. Right. Right? 
is in challenging what you think you know, right? And and so and I, and in working with you, I just noticed you were willing to do that, like willing to look into well, maybe there are possibilities. So particularly around those kinds of worries, they're based on what I know and and what I've made up about what I know, and <laughs> and so then questioning those opens up new possibility. And you know, resistance comes in when I'm convinced that what I know is going to come about, and I'm not in the question. So then mm -hmm. this is resistance and. And uh, I know for me it has, and and pressure. I feel pressure, and then I get I can be I can tend to be a little reactive with my friend with my you know the guys I'm working with, and I can be reactive to my family, and because I'm anticipating something I really don't want, and I think it's coming, right? So then you know that, that sounds like that that thing around you know they always say that quote from Dune or whatever fear is the mind killer. Yeah, it made me think when you're talking, it's not really fear; it's certainty that's the mind killer, right? Yeah. That's, that's, that's coming. The beginner's mind thing. It's like that certainty is the thing that actually gets you into conclusion and you've got nowhere to go from there. Yeah. Yeah. I call it the dogma of fear, which is certainty. Yeah, exactly. The dogma of fear is certainty. I'm certain this is coming. And, and that that's actually a good muscle. And I wish somebody, you know, that's because it's never been articulated to me like that when I was, especially when I was starting out as an entrepreneur, someone to say, if there's a muscle you need to work on, we always say situational awareness is the thing. Like I would say that's the thing that for me has been very helpful. But that's but really it's it's being building the muscle of being very comfortable with uncertainty so you don't shut off an opportunity that you haven't yet identified because of your point of view or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I know that about both you and, and Gordon is you're quick. You're quick on your feet. I mean, mm -hmm. you'll like you'll be here for one minute and you'll look at it and then bang, you go to another place, which is really exciting to work with. And I think it shows up in your business, your ability to to, to be at one place, maybe be confident about it, and then move to another. Mm. Quick, right? We try to be exciting to work with. I really set that as a core goal. <laughs> It'll keep you coming back, Dan, for many years. <laughs> I get you to show up for the next session if I can just be exciting. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's great. Uh, so, so many ideas here, but the yeah, that that's worth that's worth noting. I mean, even the can I still be curious? you know, even beyond my history, you know, that's part of, I mean, I, that's part, I mean, part of certainty comes from, uh, especially if you're a talented leader, you've, you've, you've leaned on your intuition historically and mm -hmm. probably have a pretty good record of it. And it, it, even if you're not doing that, your brain's telling you that, that you're right or that you ought to be right, or at least you ought to act right. Um, because they need me to be certain. Um, mm -hmm. and yeah, that's gut thing actually it's that's a really interesting thing to mine because there's so much in the culture around trust your gut and yeah. i actually think you're there is you're losing a little bit of yeah. you want to be suspicious of your gut because they're not of your gut necessarily but of all the constructs and all the mental tricks that we all play sure. unconsciously that are guiding our thinking that right. send us into faulty conclusions all the time. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's the black swan. And so I do, I think that's actually, that's such a powerful um, exercise to just train yourself, listen, but then listen and just give give room that, that you could be wrong, right? Yeah. That your instincts could be wrong. Yeah, one of the things, yeah, you know, go ahead, Dan. Oh, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I was just going to say, you know, for me, the, the bumper sticker for it, for myself is, you know, don't trust your intuition, test it. Right. Exactly. You know, yeah. So yeah. Intuition, but you know, right. am, am I willing? Am I willing to hold my intuition out here enough that I can look at it and not it to be so personalized? I think that's the, the 
the trick of the intuition, or at least, I don't know, part of the story about it is it's like, it's internal. I don't know. It's just something here. And then it's so personalized because mm -hmm. I usually can't quantify it or I don't know how I, I have it. So then it's yeah. so much in me and then I'm precious about it. Then it's like, oh, now if they're test, if they're, if they're challenging it, they're challenging me and you can't hold exactly. it out here and like hold it like a prism. And like, what happens if I turn it this way? Is this idea right? Or what about this way? Yeah. What are we going to say, Dan? I was actually going to make that distinction. So, oh, thanks. Here we are. Here we are. You did more, eloquent, more eloquently than I would have. Oh, so well, great. I'm glad you went first. <laughs> That's great. Well, and one of the things to the question earlier, Chad, around for other leaders, I mean, part of, I think part of the, I don't know, what happens when people have their own space. Court, you were saying with some alternative communication routes and some, Sometimes indirect communication is a great opening for direct communication. Right. Right. Like when the kids are in the back seat, that type of thing, or you're talking about something else. And, um, but I, you know, I think part of the issues I'm seeing with some clients is also like the indirectness actually reveals a, a lot. Meaning, you know, if someone was 50% in before, um, they might, without the tethering to the culture now, if they're working remotely, you mm -hmm. know, uh, some leaders that I know and work with have been naive to what else might be going on there mm, mm -hmm. because you know, if they were 50% before they haven't gotten closer to their people that were fence sitters before. Instead, right. they've, they've, they've operated naively and saying, Oh, they've, you know, you know, I know, I know, you know, Sally's looking for another job, but, and, but they don't like go check in. And I right. think there's a lot of people that in this time, partially it's because I think, the human being um, in crisis prioritizes itself. So yeah. if they've got complaints, they've probably gotten louder um, and, and they're probably utilizing the distance to reaffirm their complaints. Um, and they're not, they're not testing those either. So I think, I, I think there's going to be a lot of fallout after this. When you say, Hey, time to come back. I think a lot of people will have done some polishing on the resume, if you will, and be thinking about the next thing, which I think is worth top leaders to slow and make sure you connect with the people that for sure you want them to come back. And just us, we just did this. We just had as an exercise that we initiated this week, which is for every single manager to do a 24 month road career roadmap with all of their, with everyone on the team cool. for the next two to three weeks, because we'd had a conversation kind of related to this a couple of weeks ago about that, about people checking out and my concern and, yeah. To your point of possibility that it actually becomes an opportunity to highlight really and understand and be clear about who's in and who's out and then yeah. make decisions from that place, which is a much more empowered activity and yeah. empowering for the managers versus to feel like things are happening to you. I do think it's normal, though. People are just more exhausted. You guys have done this. You sit on Zoom all day. It is amazing how much more tired I am by three and four o'clock than normally at the office where I am moving nonstop all day. I'm talking to people, I'm moving. Man, you do this a bunch of times in a row and you are white. And so people are kind of like the bandwidth for those extra things is hard to find. I mean, it, it is harder for people. Yeah. It's really interesting you brought that up because it, 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 we talked about this a little bit the other day, but there's a tendency to resist. And that I think the you know that mm -hmm. produces an energy, you know, a, it makes you makes me more tired. Like yeah. when I when I was a young guy, I used to, when I was a young trainer working in a room, I would be worried that the certain people would stand up. I might not be smart enough. I might not be articulate enough. I might not listen well, right? And I, I would start to resist. And the more I would resist, 
I would get tired. I remember going, coming home sometimes and falling on the bed and going to sleep. And then as I started relaxing, I noticed I had more energy afterwards. Mm. And I've, I've been resisting this a lot, like sitting down, you know, and just I have to get myself relaxed so that I don't resist the calls or I don't give myself completely to them. I just start add, I start pulling away and I start adding to the resistance. And it, and it gets it, it wears on me. And I go, oh, I got another call coming up. You know, totally. Like, yeah. And by the end of the day, I'm beat. Like you said, four o'clock is. I can. I've had days where four o'clock, I'm ready to go to bed. Right? Yeah, I can hear it from my team. People definitely are feeling. We've been. Everyone's been sharing tips and you know music lists and all that kind of stuff to kind of keep people. But you can tell it's 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 yeah. different. You know, it's wearing on people a little bit. Definitely an, an inner game. It's, yeah, it's an inner game. Can I go back just for a second to when you were talking about intuition? Because I thought that was really interesting and being skeptical of your intuition or at least being willing to examine. And I'm wondering, I think this is a common thread. Uh, you know, some people hold really tight to their intuition and it's always right. And as long as you follow it, you're going to you're going to get the, the the results that you want. And I'm I'm not necessarily in that camp or believe that, but I am interested into I, I'm, I'm very interested to hear how you interact, how do you, how do you become skeptical of your intuition? Like when you feel that, when you feel that, like when, when has it been successful? When has it not been successful? Does that make sense? Yeah, I guess what's hard to figure out is the difference between your into when it's truly your intuition and when it's just, um, I don't know, facts. Like in other words, how do you distinguish between a gut feeling and just some decision you've come up with? Or I don't know if they're the same thing. I mean, you heard my smart ass response, which is just like, all you have to do is be alive long enough and you get a pretty clear sense that you're not always fucking right. Um, <laughs> or just, I don't know. Be the gift of age. <laughs> or have kids or like anything, you know, um, just be alive and aware. And it seems pretty obvious that you're not right all the time. Um, I don't know. That's a changing question. I don't know what you, Dan or Adrian, what your guys' response is to that, like what your sense is of, of that. But to me, it just sort of seems self-evident over time. Like I'm not, you know, always the sharpest tool in the shed, but like enough evidence. Yes, I am not right. And or more like it's a choice because you can either be right or get this or get the win. And meaning yeah. either you can be right or you can get the new information and get a better outcome. And at some point I decided, although I still might default to thinking I'm right, I, I do know in my heart and soul and brain that I'm gonna have more meaning, I don't mean things, I mean more, just more in life and better outcomes if I'm open to the possibility that I'm wrong, you know, all the time. Well, to me too, um, intuition or hunches are juxtaposed against the potential failings of what's gonna occur, you know, the pitfalls mm -hmm. that come, right? So when I look out at the future, I go, okay, what to, to identify an asymmetry, I look at the facts. I look at I look as much research as I can and look at the numbers. And then I check them up against my my gut. I'll never forget my son. I, I, I was having problems spelling. He would see, you know, he goes, Dad, well, tell me what your strategy is. I never thought he was like <laughs> I go, What's I don't have a strategy? He goes, Yeah. Do you, the word? Do you see the word? Say the word like like how's it work? I, I go, I don't know. He goes, Well, a strategy that works is to see the word, say the word, spell the word, check the word with your gut, right? And I never realized we we have a. I was feeling the word before I said it, 
right? right? And it would get me all screwy. So if I said the word and I could see it, then I could spell it, and then I could check that against my gut. And it, my spelling jumped immediately. It was amazing. I was getting conscious about it. And I think a lot of times if we see the future and then we look into it and then we check the facts, look into the facts, and then we see an asymmetry, then we can, like, we see an asymmetry, we can check our gut up against it. And that that balance, I think, makes for effective action. Uh, and at least if it doesn't work, you, it opens up learning, you know. I wonder, are there areas where it's more, pre so, I so I was just thinking about my own life, right? So my instincts around product are very, very good. So mm -hmm. I have got a nine point whatever out of 10 faith in my instinct around products. Mm -hmm. And I now have a trained, it's not good. Adrian's gonna be like, you're really not good at it yet. But I have like a seven on my ability to know what someone else is thinking. Okay, <laughs> working on getting that down to a five, okay. <laughs> So, so my, so my question is, I wonder, are there areas where you guys typically see that instinct is typically better at operating as the guiding mechanism versus areas where it tends to be less accurate? Well, that's a great question. I, I think of it more like your competency, you know, like, like what you're good at, you're probably unconscious about it. It's so natural. It's so it's, you've embodied it, right? It, right. It's become what what the philosopher Heidegger says at hand. You know, right, it's like exactly. you watch, That's you watch body sense, right? Yeah, why you watch a a tennis player and that racket in their hand is like a it's an extension of their body. Mm -hmm. And you put it in your hand, and it's like like this. But if you do it long enough, practice long enough, the right things, pretty soon it becomes at hand. And you're probably it feels like an instinct, but in fact, it's a learned behavior. It's learned, yeah. It's like right. if you think about it. Um, we learn those things and then we then we feel like they come natural or he's a natural. But really, they start at a very young age and entrain themselves towards that. And then it, and then to be able to teach it to somebody is to make it conscious again. So you become a conscious competent and then I can impart it. In fact, uh, I used to have, I, when I played ball, there was a coach we had. He used to say, you know, when somebody's really a great coach is when they can make visible what is invisible to them. They can make it visible to somebody else, mm -hmm. right? And it's and what does it take to do that? That's a whole nother practice. Because, right? you know, you think about it, a great coach, a great player doesn't always make a great coach. And great coaches may not always be great players, but they're, they're, they're very tuned into the distinctions of what it takes to play the game and win. So. It's, that's, I think, a core challenge is to figure out what you should rely on your instincts for. Right. And what where you should be suspicious I, that's really important because you have to have confidence as a leader you're making a million decisions a day and you are the final decision maker and it all stops with you even if you weren't so you do have to have um i don't know you have to have confidence right or a willingness to own whatever the risks are for stuff that you're deciding to do and open to other people's perspectives so you can use their intuition right collaboration is another way to check what you're up to against somebody else's intuition who mm -hmm. might have more experience than you or more competent in it than you. What do you guys think of the Ray Diallo? I don't know if you're familiar with his way of decision-making inside of his um, uh, hedge fund, you know, Ray Diallo, he's the- Yeah, I love his stuff. Yeah. And I think it's really fascinating because the way he basically turns intuition into decision-making is this everyone has a rating to your point you're just making, Dan, about 
well, that other person also has intuition. So is it that my tuition is better simply because I'm the CEO and they're the junior manager of whatever? No. no. So how do you create a weighting system for people's, for the value of their intuition and also their facts, but in a room? And that's what he does, right? He's assigned a point value to everyone's ability to contribute in a room based on the topic in the room, based on their rating and their credibility for both their intuition and knowledge around a topic, which is amazing. I think. Yeah, he and yeah, he's pretty amazing. I mean, I, I, his book Principles is one of the best books I've read. Isn't it incredible? I, yeah. I read it as well. Yeah, quite yeah. good. Yeah, it's a great read. It's great for developing that that, that kind of. And, and I think the whole idea of being transparent and open is a way that you start to really hone your instincts about people for sure. Mm -hmm. you can find out if what you think's going on over there is really going on over there, and how much. You know, how, how much have I contributed to their withholding? Like how, how have I, or how much have I contributed to their willingness to be open? It's like, mm. I quite liked his, the, I, I now go into rooms differently as a result where I am thinking about, this is the topic we're going to talk about. How much credibility does each person have on that topic? So then as I'm listening, I'm yeah. listening differently uh, based on that, which is, I thought quite, was quite good. Yeah. Like who's believable, who's not like, right. you don't, yeah. you don't believe everybody, right? It's, you know, you find the ones that are most believable. Correct. Based on irrespective of title. It's not about that. It's yeah. about topic and track record in a particular area of, of making useful contributions that then affect someone's. And we can't afford half a million dollars of software like he uses to do this whole thing. But you can still have it running in the background as you go into rooms and think about, you know, who has done what historically and therefore who you might be listening more closely to because you can't listen to everybody all the time. So yeah, which is the benefit of a meritocracy, right? I mean, yeah. For sure. And then you're only as good as the last time you were up with Matt. And now what? Right? Yeah, yeah. He's good. I like him. Yeah. I think people, a lot of the hidden resource and companies, hidden resource, I mean, uh, the, the ideas that don't make it on the table, the energy that doesn't make it to the room, the engage, the conversations that are avoided. Like that's like the hidden the, the resource that I'm talking about. I think a lot of people, as it relates to intuition and where people I think probably trust their intuition is around people. And it just comes out like, oh, if we bring this up, I know what Tom's going to say. Mm. <laughs> yeah. <That is>. <laughs> <laughs> where it's actually, we, we might think like, oh, I know already, mm -hmm. but our predictor is based on history, which right. might be, you know, valid, might be way off, you know, but it might just be judgment based. And, you know, I think a, a lot of the resource comes whenever we are willing to, you know, let Tom have a fresh shot. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if he wasn't, you know, didn't have a great idea about the thing last time or tends to get irate when we talk about what, you know, we all have lots of stories about why we avoid people or don't invite them to meetings or, you know, calling somebody else first. Um, you know, so I think that's an area where people trust their intuition, uh, I think, pretty blindly. Um uh, just because based on really it's based on like a judgment of last time he talked or his trend is um, and you don't listen. I mean, maybe maybe the lesson there is, is that might be what Tom brings to the table first. Um, but what's behind that and what else is there for him? Because that he might be bringing that up for lots of different reasons. So but yeah. typically we, you know, will uh not listen long enough to get to the resource there. And it's just, Oh, there he is again. And we move on 
because our intuition tells us, oh, I know what he's going to do every time. And that might be um, but some of those biases that are end up being baked in might show up as intuition for us later. Mm. Yeah, what one you- of the things I, I, to that point, I, one of the things I try to train my intuition to is the things I don't want to do. Those are the things I want to look into first. Mm-hmm. That's it, I kind of use my resistance to, to, to guide me to what pro, what may be the most important things to pay attention to. Mm-hmm. Like, like if I get off the phone with you and I'm still, like you said, arguing with you in my head, there must be something going on for me. Right. That's all like, like I need to talk about in order to get a handle on it. But I might be afraid to do that because it could jeopardize whatever I think I'm going to get from you or whatever incentive I that has brought us together could be at stake. But it's usually that that if I get to it early enough, tends to open up into a bigger possibility. It's a, it's an interesting dynamic. It's, I got it from alchemy. It's do the thing you least want to do, do it now. Mm-hmm. Do that one. Yeah. How do you think about time management in a meeting, Adrian? If I think about the two things intention are, I go into a room and I'm applying kind of that Diallo, okay, here's the people that have credibility. And in this conversation, so I've got other people in that are listening. And one of the people that are listening who might not have the same credibility is one of the people you're talking about that typically has demonstrated a behavior that shuts down a conversation or is counterproductive. Yeah. How do you address the tension? If you only have a limited number of time, which we all do in a lot of these meetings to give voice, to hear the people who have credibility in the conversation, not shut down someone who historically has been counterproductive, who starts to demonstrate the same behavior. I mean, if they do it every time I get not, you don't want to be in conclusion, but at the same time, you're then not giving room to the people who've earned sort of more credibility to make time for someone who historically has not done that. So how do you think about that? If you have a finite resource, in this case, time, if you can't give space to both, then how do you address that? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I Well, the first time it comes up, it's a great thing to take offline and have a conversation about create a context that person to listen in rather than have it repeat itself over and over again you can always off take it offline talk with them personally about what what they need what needs to happen for you for them to become as believable as because they want their voice right and there might be some way to 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 ramp them up to that but to to let them know i think that whole trend yeah yeah the whole transparency thing and then be open to what they have to say and Mm -hmm. listen then that'll help you become kind of get your competency clearly over to them so they can see what you are listening for that would make them believable, right? That's great. Because I think 80%, I guarantee you, people, entrepreneurs, this is 90% of their challenge in meetings is they have very little time with a lot of decisions that have to get made. And so if something's going to get short shrift, it's going to be listening to the people who historically in that particular context have not been contributors, right? You're going to go to the people who've earned in radiologist credibility, right? But right. you don't shut it down anyway. So that's great advice. And I'm going to use that. And I think that's got, there's a lot of room for that. That gives yeah. them room to get better while still allowing you to have an effective. That, that's where I meant by like, that's a conversation I don't want to have, but I need to have. Yeah. And as soon as I'm offline, I'm going to have that conversation. Yes. Because it seems like right. a pain in the butt, but it's a, an opportunity for me to make evident to them what's wanted and needed for them to become believable. Yeah, it's the only way the organization as a whole gets better, right? That's the learning organization. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, other, the other thing that comes up for me, and I don't know where it fits in the conversation here, but um, there's also like, it's, a, it's a, a quotient around motivation. 
because mm. you know cre- historical credibility uh, with no buy-in or no commitment to make something new happen is different. It's a whole different ballgame than historical credibility leveraged for the sake of the future. You know, like if I've um, say, say more, say more. Yeah, I'm just gonna yeah. say that. Say more. I want to hear more. Yeah, I mean, I mean. All right. So what is credibility? If, if, if it is, as we've been talking about here from Dalio, they've got experience in the field, knowledge in the field, they're an expert, they stay on, they stay up on trends, they understand things, they know the players or whatever the story is about what makes someone they, credible. They demonstrate results. Yeah, they, they it's a demonstra- yeah. In his world, it's a demonstrated track record of adding, whether it's commentary, anything strategy in that particular area. Yeah, that's right. Well, and I think, I mean, this is where I think people have challenges in hiring because that's essentially what a resume is a little bit different, but essentially what it is, it's like, it's, it's, and when people have a resume, it's just, you know, plot points on a, on a map, but they've got a story about what was great about that. Mm. I.e. credibility. So, and I'm, but the history that's not attached to a future, uh, isn't, I mean, it immediately loses its value is what I'm getting. No context has no meaning. No context to it, right? So it's it's, and I don't know. That's why I'm saying I don't know quite where it fits in the conversation. But there's also something worth exploring about how much does he? Because there might be someone that's, let's say, if we put on a scale, somebody's got a nine out of ten credibility in this thing, and mm-hmm. another person has five out of ten. But the five out of ten person, their job's on the line to make this work. The nine out of ten, uh, you yeah. know, they're not, they're they're got not different context. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess. So you know, like I guess being able also also to to gauge the level of, of buy-in or commitment to make something happen um, might affect, or I guess I'm thinking in this scenario, would it be worth it? Let's say the five out of 10 person uh, is actually the one responsible, but they, for the outcome, but they don't have the cred. I don't, I don't know how this would work out in real life or in real time, but they don't have the credibility that the other person has. You might want for them to flounder a bit or to put out their bad ideas Mm-hmm. So the bad, quote unquote, bad ideas in real time, because the nine out of 10 person is not going to be optimized or, you know, um, what's the word operationalizing anyway. Right. Um, so it's a part of, I don't know, maybe as you, it's a pretty cool idea to think, think through these things, as you're walking into rooms, but also how to position the nine out of 10 credibility person to be a resource to five, the five out of 10 person, because they're the one operationalizing it. And it's just a, a way to connect those people so that ideas don't only happen in that room. They actually are, Hey, when you come up against trouble, you've not done this before, but you're in charge. When you, when you come up against trouble, you need to call this person, whatever the person's name is, as you're moving it forward, because they're such an expert in that field. So maybe it's two checks you're having before you go into the rooms where you're going to make a decision that, you know, matters is, not only the credibility rating, but then just a gut check on context for each person in your brain. Yeah. So that as you're going through it, you can, because ultimately the goal always is how can, how can we be more effective, more successful? Cause that helps everyone else be more successful. So I think that's a good second layer. So, right. is like, okay, I'm going to do a credibility check before I go into this room, but I'm also going to just do a quick, okay, what is the context for each person here? So I can have that in the back of my mind as I'm essentially moderating the conversation, right? Yeah. So that you're, you're able to do that and do the follow-up like Dan said, right? Where, where appropriate. Yeah. I yeah. Like that. yeah. And, and my, my thought about as well, it's like, if, 
if you find yourself as a leader avoiding some person because of how they've shown up historically, they're going to make up a reason why you're avoiding them. So you might as well give them the real reason. Right, right. hundred percent. They know it. They know that they've lost their seat. Yep. You might just go ahead and tell them. <laughs> Adrian, I have something I have to tell you. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> uh, but, you know, Courtney, I was thinking back to what you said, like in the meeting, let's say you're in the meeting and somebody's doing that, like they're the, they're they're rookies or they're tr they want to make a contribution. They're trying to or it's not relevant mm -hmm. and you don't have a lot of time. That's another place where you can actually request it. Hey, can we take that offline when we're done here? Right now we're going to have this conversation and let's you and me meet. So that way it honors them and it doesn't – and they know what they're going forward to. But I was thinking in light of that because I was thinking about the guy who might be at a five who's – Driving is the causal source, the one who's going to be responsible for it, giving them a nine, somebody who's at a nine, and that that person's at stake too. There's some at stakeness for everybody in the game. Right? So they're like their winning has a lot to do with this person's ability to coach them. And because they're, you know, it's like moving them up the line. Yeah, I hear I hear an undertone of investment, right? There's a, there's an investment to be made instead yeah. of um, – worrying every time this person <laughs> opens their mouth, there's an opportunity there to say, Hey, there's a reason they're, they're on our team. They mm -hmm. hold a, a significant position from their perspective and from the perspective of the, of the company, how can I invest? And, and I think when, when it's approached as an investment, Hey, I hear you have some ideas. They're not landing in the meeting room. Can I give you some pointers? Can we work through how you can present your ideas in a way that they can be heard? Uh, because we, you're on the team because you have value to add. Now let's help you add that value in a way that people can receive it. And, and tell me what you're thinking when you said this, because <laughs> <laughs> we always hear the, the number one complaint from people, um, entrepreneurs particularly that I hear is like about meetings. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Gordon's always like a oh, meeting. And I realized like, that's just a reflection of our ability to, to have good. I mean, it's not like meetings in and of themselves are a thing, right? It's just an exchange of ideas. So it, it dreading going to meetings, is just a reflection of like, we're not doing this right. It's no different than a product, right? You're good at product because you're practicing it. You get the game. Yeah. So the game to having meetings, well, I wonder, and there's probably, and there's principles and like, how do we, how do we have that work? It's fascinating because actually you don't read a lot of art as we're talking about all this stuff. I just realized like you do not read articles about how to have a good meeting. Fast Company Inc., like all these magazines. It's always about like, tell me your story and how did you and you realize like the thing that actually 90 percent of people do, particularly in startups in their day is is be in fucking meetings. And if you ask people what drives you, I wish I had fewer meetings and more time to do what I'm doing. But you're doing the thing in the meeting. That's when all the decisions are getting made. Yeah. So it, it really should be, there should be more conversation about being a great leader. It sounds so boring to people. Being a great leader is really about learning how to, to have great meetings. I mean, literally. Yeah, right. Exactly. Causing results through other people. Yeah. yeah. And just yeah. the word meeting, I think, has such a, it's like a trigger for people. This idea of getting into a room with their fellow human beings and figuring something out. And um, you realize, it's, I mean... I, I like them actually, because you're in a room with people and you're like solving problems, which is to me fun. Um, not every true for everyone, but anyway, so I, um, anyway, just the, the connection of meetings and leadership is very real and it doesn't sound sexy, so it doesn't get talked about enough. So I actually think for a lot of entrepreneurs, that's a big deal. Should do yeah. That. 
Well, it's it's one of the, I think it's one of the un, untapped resources because if people don't like meetings, what they know at some level is that they come. I mean, probably they show up. They show up grumpy to the meetings, or mm -hmm. disconnected to the meetings, or don't want to be there. So they're going to fake being there, mm -hmm. or hate being there. They're going to resist being there. They're actually not going to bring their best ideas to the table. They're probably not going to be easy to deal with. Just to re, and then they're going to get the results. The meeting's going to be bad, and then they get to be right about how bad meetings are. And like, there's this interesting cycle I would say happens at. But, you know, I, I don't know many leaders that stop and take feedback around, hey, or I guess first thing would be like, we talked about this a little bit, Court, around at the beginning of the COVID crisis was having a fresh conversation with folks about how to show up to a Zoom meeting and mm -hmm. how, you know, that that might be needed, the conversation to recontextualize how we're going to show up together. What are the new agreements about how to be here? Because the temptations are huge to be distracted and somewhere else. And, you know, and you wanted people to be able to be have videos. You could see them, you mm -hmm. know, connect with them instead of, you know, doing what most people do is be in a Zoom meeting. And if they can be doing other things at the same time. Right. But my, my point is, you know, not a lot of folks define what a successful meeting looks like or and l let alone do they enroll people in how they're going to show up to meetings. How are you going to participate? Because if yeah. we're, you know, if we, especially if we have a senior leadership team of seven people that are going to show up, that's a very expensive meeting Yeah, exactly. for the company, yeah. you know? So if we haven't wondered about how to get the most out of it and what it's going to take from each of us at the table to get the most out of it, well, there's a lot of resource there. Even fundamentally, do we need a meeting? What's the purpose of the meeting? What are we going to accomplish? Does it require a meeting? Could it be handled with an email, a call? Uh, you know, it's like, like thinking those things out first. I know, for us, we talked a lot about that because you're calling people together. And if they know what the purpose of the meeting is, and then given that purpose, you should be in the meeting. <laughs> That's another thing, right? And how long should it, are we going to take? And then then what needs to happen after the meeting? Like what results will we have out of the meeting? And then what, how do I follow up on that? Those are all pre-thoughts. Yeah. So, yeah, it's good stuff. Yeah, cynicism that shows up, I think, probably probably most places. But when cynicism is showing up, it's usually from stunted vision. Like people haven't said what they need to say about what they want. And then they decide to become cynical. And, you know, instead of like owning the meeting, even if even if I'm on Courtney's team and Courtney calls the meeting, what's it like for me to show up like it's mine? Mm. You know, yeah. and, if, and if, if I'm showing up to Courtney's meeting and Courtney's not prepared for it, can I tell Courtney, hey, I just gave an hour of my time and I wasn't doing all this stuff. Instead, I was here. And it seems to me like we wait, like we didn't get anywhere. Like, right. can you talk about that? Right. Can our leaders, top leaders actually getting feedback around the quality of the meeting? And if you're not something to try out. Yeah, I like that. Man, we need meeting 101 for audience. <laughs> I'm serious. I worked, I worked, he'd call the meeting and then he'd sit down and ask us, OK, good. What'd you call this meeting for? <laughs> In other words, what are you going to be responsible for? Yeah. What are you it's it's fun when you do that in the public training, Dan, in the Revenant, and you say, "Would you what'd you call this meeting for?" To all the participants who had just paid money to come, and they're sitting in their seats, looking at Dan, like, "All right, what are you going to give us? What do you got?" Yeah, goes, what'd you call this meeting for? It's such a great moment to see the look on the faces, uh, and it's really an invitation to ownership. Um, well, I'm aware of the time, 
So this has been amazing. We didn't know where this was going to go, but we got some beautiful stuff in here. Courtney, again, thank you so much for your generosity and jumping on here with us. And uh, you got my wheels as the role, you know, playing the role of communications for TNG. You got my wheels rolling on so many things around meetings, uh, how we show up for people, how we train them to be in meetings. So thank you for that gift. Um, And uh, Adrian, Dan, thank you again for, for being here. Yeah. yeah, you're welcome. And I just want to also say thanks, Court. I mean, you're such a stand in the market. I mean, your product is for the health and wellness of our of the world and of our culture. And so thank you for that. And then it's just been such a joy to get to know you and get to know Gordon so well and get to know your team as we're you know involved now. And um, the closer we get, the more impressed we are and the more we want to be more and more involved. So thank you. Right. Thank you. Very kind of you guys. And let me just say TNG, uh, it has been such a gift to me and to my team and to get their feedback and how lit up they are um, by being able to work on all this stuff. And I love these conversations, you know, that, they're, when they're real, right? They're just, they're incredible. And so awesome to do an interview and just learn a bunch of stuff. So thank you guys, as always. Thank you. Yeah. Awesome. All right, bye-bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, friends of the podcast, thank you so much for joining us this week. If this podcast has helped you or entertained you at all, we encourage you to go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a five-star rating and a glowing review. That'll help us reach more people and grow this community. Also, the greatest compliment that you can give us is sharing this podcast with the people in your life that are looking for a new way to lead and to relate to others. And finally, if you have any suggestions or feedback for the podcast, we would love to hear from you. You can email me at chad at takenewground.com. Thank you so much for joining us and we'll meet you back here next week for another episode of the Naked Leadership Podcast.